0: Hi guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. This is my first video interview, and it was a lot of fun. I'm really glad we did it this way. And I have interviewed the pioneers, a few of the pioneers of wilderness therapy guiding. Um, I sat down with a bunch of friends that have been doing this for a very long time. The profession of wilderness therapy in the field is quite young only about 20 years young. Uh, And in that time, in that short amount of time, it's come a long way. And it's really fun to go back and hear some of the stories of the people who were working in the early days. It was effective then and it's effective now. And we continue to evolve and develop and get better every year as a field. And we work together hard on that. And I hope that this video also shows that sense of collaboration from different aspects of our of our profession so uh good people good fun good stories uh thanks for tuning in and as always i hope you enjoy all right everybody welcome to my podcast hey andrew hey Hey. Awkward start, right? That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <Like> this, is, <laughs> this is the first time in video I've done a podcast interview, and I saved it especially for you folks because this has been something I've been wanting to do for a good year, year and a half now, maybe two years. Ever since I saw the panel of sort of the pioneers of of wilderness guiding, so welcome. I I grew a beard especially for this occasion so I could fit in with Petrie and Daly. The, uh, the quintessential beards and uh, I'm
1: slacking, I'm sorry. I had to shave for another Zoom call this morning. It was yeah, it was painful. <laughs>
2: well, like, support, the Jeremy, game. support. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: pound <laughs> gorilla yeah. in the
0: room that you're not acknowledging Jillian's beard. Hey, I'm,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna move on from that.
3: I, I was uh, working on it too, but uh, <laughs> I'm
0: a struggle. Right on guys, listen. Uh, I, I'm excited to hear, uh, why don't we start with like, introduce yourselves real quickly, um, who you are, where you live, what you do now, and your first job in wilderness therapy or outdoor behavioral health or something of, of the sort. Uh, why don't we start with Derek, go to Jeremy, Jillian, and then Mike.
4: Yeah, hey, this is uh, Derek Daly, Legacy Outdoor Adventures and Juniper Canyon Recovery um, for women, so that's that's what I'm doing now, but uh, my journey in wilderness started about 20 years ago. Uh, first guiding gig was at uh, Red Cliff Ascent. I was uh, t- 20 years old and saw an ad in the paper and, uh, you know, I'd been working at a job where I, I wore a tie every day and uh, had this vision or more of a nightmare that I was going to be wearing that same tie at the age I am now, just, you know, doing sales. And so I I craved something different, uh, answered the ad, went out in the desert and, you know, uh, spent eight days out there on a training and sitting around the fires out there in the desert. I had this just overwhelming experience of finding, finding a place and finding purpose and finding my people and since that first trip in the desert 20 years ago I've been finding ways to sit around fires in the desert ever since and more than that just found something to be passionate about and you know there's lots of things I get to do that's rewarding in this work but there's nothing I'm more passionate about than than field guides they're still my favorite people to this day Uh, they're they're a little bit different characters than some of the ones we found 20 years ago maybe we'll talk little bit about that, but uh, I, I love them. I can spot them a mile away. I'd be hanging out in REI and be like, those guys over there, that, those are some field guides right there. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: What was the job with the tie? I got I to gotta know.
4: So I was working for a PEO, which is a professional employer organization. And I got this really cool job as a young kid uh, the company grew really fast and so i got to I, I basically got promoted and i got to drive fancy cars and go do customer service as just a young kid uh, and take people donuts and go golfing and 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 uh, there wasn't a lot of skill involved in the job uh but you know there was no soul in it for me and uh, i found myself just not feeling satisfied and you know discovering this work out in the desert and the challenges it was just yeah, it was, uh, I'm, I'm sure glad I made the shift then.
0: Cool. Jeremy. Hey,
1: guys. I'm Jeremy McGeorge. Um, I work and help run a company called the Bertram Group. We're an educational placement and behavioral health care services placement company. We're uh, kind of all over New England. Uh, I live in western Massachusetts out in the Berkshires and have an office down in Westport, Connecticut, and and uh, spend most of my time here in of bopping around New England when I'm not out traveling to see schools and programs throughout the country. Um, I got into this work uh, in a similar fashion. I think it came at me out of left field. I was living fantasies of being a marine biologist and studying the evolution of social behavior and animals writing really silly articles about sponges and the little animals that lived inside of them and traveling (laughs) back and forth to Mexico. It was just like a fabulous way to make a a living as I thought I wanted to be a college professor. And one of my damn roommates was a field guide um, up at Aspen Achievement Academy. And I was coming back east to go work and he said, maybe you don't want to go be east this summer. Why don't you come up to Utah with me and is this hiring seminar, we're just going to go out in the woods for a week and kind of check it out. And I thought to myself, this is great, you know, eight days on six off, I can go play around in Arizona, and, and the rest of four corners and climb and fish and, and do the things we're supposed to do all summer. And, and, you know, in the meantime, I'll have some good times with kids out in the woods. Eight days later, it changed my life. You know, I met these people who were just iconic versions of the person I wanted to be and and who were inspiring and spiritual and had depth and were quirky and hilarious and and chasing after Edward Abbey's tale I think at that point which was kind of a big part of what I was doing and and I it was undeniable I went back to college in the fall and tried to deny it for a little bit and before I knew it I had a, gu- uh, a guiding position by Christmas with a local company at that point it was called the Venture Discovery and It just stuck with me for the next year and a half and it just wove itself into the quilt of my life and uh ever since then i've been chasing it and i just love sharing the outdoors with people i love being a guide in a very different capacity now i'm sort of one of those first steps as kids kind of crawl out of their bedroom and out into the wilds or into this transformative experience and i love sharing not only the people that are part of that but the stories that are part of it as well
0: you and you and my i i i'm excited to hear about your history in costa rica well i'm sure we'll get to it later but uh you and i share a have a special place in our heart for costa rica and I, i love hearing your early stories of guiding down there so jillian talk to us what's going on yeah
3: um i am i currently live in medford wisconsin and um very recently am unattached i'm i'm doing a few different things right now most recently i was a clinical director at new vision wilderness wisconsin so i'm still doing a little contract work with them and doing a little coaching definitely um, feeling a pull to be a little bit more of a mom right now um, but still really important to me to figure out how i can do that and also uh, help the families and be involved in wilderness in in a way that that has really shaped me into who I am um, Got my start and I I was finishing up my undergrad and getting ready to go to grad school in um, In California and being a field guide at at Red Cliff Ascent was actually one of the internship options for my for my undergrad and I never did it while I was in school and I had a friend who who was training for it. So I was like, yeah, that, I mean, that, that sounds right up my alley. I grew up in Northern Minnesota, love being outside. Um, so, you know, called, called them up three days later was down there training. Um, and probably the most, the most scary and, um, I guess it, it sounds cliche but that was the first place I'd ever been in my life where I was like these are my people this is where this is where I belong um and really like really grew up there worked there for for about 10 years in in, wow. in amongst other things um but always have had that that really special place in my heart for field guides is that's where I've I've started and know that that's I and mean, that's the job that matters most. They're doing they're doing the hard work and so I always wanted to support them, be connected to that part as as much as I can.
2: Awesome.
0: Mike Petrie. So,
2: there's a there's a theme going on here. Um so I I was in Arkansas. I was 25 and I met the woman who would become my wife and she Just graduated from high school, actually, and was recruited to play basketball for a little college in Utah. And at the time, I was on this corporate America track working for the Walmart home office because I was in Northwest Arkansas. But I wanted to follow her out to Utah because I didn't want her to get scooped up by all those Mormon dudes out there. And I was like, she's a jewel, so I'm going to follow her. So I transferred from the Walmart home office to a Sam's Club in Provo. And the general manager there was a friend of mine from Arkansas who had just come out to run it. So I drove his son from Arkansas to Utah and worked there for a minute. And then he's like, what do you know about tires? And I was like, nothing. And he's like, would you like to run the tire shop? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, Let's, let's do that. So I got this job working at a tire shop, and me and all these other guys decided that we were going to head down with our other people to go, to go to Calf Creek Falls in southern Utah, which is down, you know, past Boulder, past Escalante, like out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so we came out to Wayne County, Utah, which is where Aspen happened and we were driving through Torrey, and there are these trees that make this tunnel, and there's a general store in TP, and it's kind of got this touristy shtick. So we got out to go get sodas or whatever, and there was this dude standing out in front of the the general store there, dreadlocks, like my age, and I'm like, hey man, how you doing? And he, we chatted, and I figured out that he lived here, and I was like, you live here? I mean, this is... I was like, you live here? And he's like, yeah, I work here, too. And I was like, what do you do? And he's like, well, I take troubled kids in camping. And I was like, dude, that's not true, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, nobody's going to trust you with their kids and pay money. Like, that's not going to (laughs) happen. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Where do you go? And he pointed to what I know now is, like, the Velvet Ridge. And he's like, well, we take them up there. And I was like, like, I swear, like, my heart – heard something, felt something, like that giddy feeling. I was like, oh my gosh, man, something's here. And, and I, you know, I didn't process that much. And then fast forward six months, I'm married now. My wife sees an ad in the newspaper for Wilderness Field Guides. And she's like, do you want to do this? And I was like, look, I don't have my psych degree yet. They're not going to hire us. I mean, I was definitely a smell fungus, glass half empty. So she went ahead and responded to the, uh, to the ad. And uh, so we got a VHS videotape from Red Cliff Ascent that includes footage of kids running in from the forest at the end to their parents. And we both, I can't even talk about it. We both cried like babies. And I said, I'm quitting my job. And we went to training. And just like Jillian, I was at Red Cliff for 12 years. Like it was my people for the first time ever. It was so fulfilling that even the crappy parts of the job were un- were doable for a decade plus, and that I don't know if I'll ever get that again. Anyway, that's my. <laughs> it
0: it <laughs> definitely a common theme, right? You you all felt called on some level at a in a in a deep and moving way, and while my my field guiding start wasn't in the therapeutic industry um it was through uh river guiding and then eventually outward bound costa rica I, similar feeling for sure of finding my people finding my tribe finding a lot of meaning in in what the work is and because it's not for everybody right i mean you have to be a pretty unique uh, quirky and wild person to be into this, um, as Jeremy kind of put it. And that's why all you weirdos are on this call with me today. <laughs> um, so what was it like back then? You all work in the same field now, and, and you're all very well respected. And, but what was it like then? And what's changed over time? If there's a field guide currently working in the field listening, I don't know, what would you want them to know? What What did it look like then? What worked? What didn't? How far have we come? What What was really, you know, what are you nostalgic about that, that was wonderful then that you kind of miss and wish we had more of? Um, tell stories, guys. Uh, no one needs to listen to me today. This is all about you guys. So I'll go. I, well. I remember. Right,
3: so yeah, when I trained, like Looking back at my first two weeks in this field, I've often thought about that and thought like, why did I stay? That was miserable. Um, I remember like my first shift, I, I cheated a little bit. I was lucky because I had a friend who worked there. So they taught me how to do a survival pack. But I remember doing like our first hike, this eight mile hike with a trainer who was like, so serious and not even talking to us and like here's here's a tarp and all your stuff pack it up and and packing that up and the luckily I, I cheated so I knew how to do it the girl in front of me her pack was like down at her ankles and we're hiking for eight miles and like afterward I remember like having blisters not not eating for the entire week because the food I didn't know how to cook it the food was so disgusting <laughs> and like the next week not even having a second thought of going back and like looking back at that I was like what what was I thinking but like the that sense of adventure and learning something new and being around people who really thought like me like the at night having the check-ins around the campfire and talking about your day and connecting in that way those are the things that draw you back even though like physically mentally and emotionally it it was exhausting and chan- the most challenging thing I've ever done.
2: Hey, by the way, Jillian, what, was, was it Marmot that trained you?
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Like, I couldn't think of any other trainer that would be, like, aloof. And anyway, that I needed to know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll respond. And so, speaking to the question, like, what what's different now? Um, so, my wife and I trained... And then the second or third shift in the field, we were the lead instructors. So we had uh, about between 14 and 21 days of experience. And then they're like, go do this. That and happened to me too. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, Exactly. Third shift. No, yeah. just, yeah, yeah.
2: I remember like being a, a pretty self – Maybe self-aware person, and I remember standing out there, and like the, the the truck left, and it's just me and my wife, and these kids that I'm still not sure are going to cause me physical harm or not, you know? Right. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't think that these people who are our bosses are responsible people, because they're putting me out here, and it's like I'm probably not going to do anything purposefully harmful, but I'm. I'm basically just a kid myself, but now, fast forward to now, 20 years later, it's like there is genuine sophistication in preparing guides to do this work, both to, to protect themselves emotionally, to, uh, to understand how to navigate the kids without engaging in power struggles, uh, how, to, how to facilitate the programming safely. And so we were safe and we didn't have critical incidents but we could have more likely then than now, I think.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a, a head instructor, I remember, before, right before I turned 21. I'd worked maybe four shifts. And I remember, I remember thinking, uh, oh, I got this yeah, like this is, this is you're just out here and it's like, yeah, four shift in, thinking I like know how to do this field guiding thing, you know, and and to your point, like in contrast today, like how much work we put in preparing people to to take on the leadership. From field guide perspective, there's a couple of things that I think are definitely different from 20 years ago. One, they get paid a lot more. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> that that they get paid more. And also like you guys tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it, in my memory, it's, when I think back 20 years ago, one of the things that stands out was there was, some, there was some real diversity in the types of characters that you had show up out in the field, and, and both in the style and how they were coming in. And nowadays, uh, not that we, we don't still have like diverse skill sets, but I think field guides have sort of perfected like wilderness style and showing up and and like the van life and what they're doing it's like man these guys are so styling today and have it perfected and you know i look at how dialed in and i'm like man i you know we we didn't quite have it figured out in the same way 20 years ago well it's had it figured out yeah 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 it's i mean i know i I knew a couple guys living in their cars back then but it was not it wasn't pretty it, it was like embarrassing. It
2: wasn't like I'm flaunting that I'm driving yeah. through with my posh dirt bag outfit.
4: <laughs> no, it was it like, like hillbillies. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they had a hanger in the back seat of a Honda, you know, with like. <laughs> yeah, I remember like
2: going into a polywalk camp, which was where they brought the new kids to like just sit still for a week and acclimate. And there was this guy with a, like a. He looked like a lumberjack, he had like jeans on. And like Walmart shoes and a plaid shirt. And, and I was like, you're a field guy too? Like we come from completely different worlds, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I think especially in that area in Southern Utah, there was a real integration with, and, and Northern Utah too probably, with the Boulder Outdoor School, right? I think that those guys, there were a lot of guys who were really, and girls too, that were really primitive wilderness skills people. That's what got them into this work, right? And they were trained at the Boulder Outdoor Survival School, you know, where they were out living with a, you know, a knife and a bedroll, right, for weeks on end. And I think that, to me, was kind of inspiring and amazing to see these, you know, individuals because I had done some outdoor stuff when I was in high school and a ton when I was in college, but it was all on my own terms, right? And, and there was a lot of creature comfort involved, right, in terms of backpacks and sleeping pads and things like that. And suddenly there was this very reductionistic version of it whereby you were really looking at survival, quote unquote, in the wild, right? And and keying in on the nature around you and keying in on the ecosystem as it's evolving and you're evolving in it. And it was really spiritual and and something that I think these guys really brought to this work in a way that inspired, I think, the children inspired the staff, and and really spoke to us. I think in a in, in a spiritual way, as we were probably all looking for it in our twenties. Mm-hmm. I had to guess, if I had to guess. You know, I think there were some real spiritual elements of sitting under petroglyphs and and mystical experiences that to this day I still can't really make sense of as much as I wish I could. And I don't know if those guys sort of staged it for me, right? Like it could have all just been bullshit that they like created to like make me have a spiritual experience or it could have been a real sort of deep unexplainable spiritual experience. And I think if I look at what I've tried to weave into the work and and what I seek out a lot with my kids and families is that connectedness, that shift in paradigm and that existential piece. And, and I think it spoke to a lot of us and, and probably still speaks within the fiber of field guiding today. If I had to guess, you know, I mean, I'm not on my butt in the, in the, dirt as much but still struck by that piece when i integrate with it you know when i spend the time and and i think that's what a lot of this age group really seeks right kind of a deeper sense of connectedness it's really profound
4: i mean i think i think that you know the basic recipe uh that what you're speaking to the basic recipe of what we're doing out there in the woods in large part has remained the same you know it's mm. it's a simple idea of taking people it's really a shortcut like, how good do you have to be when you take people uh who are having dysfunction for whatever reason and you just strip away things and you go out in the desert and sit around fires you know, that's why we were able to pull it off at four shifts because that it's just inherently powerful. And I think, you know, one of the things that certainly remain the same. And I hear you speaking to the chair is that the pride that I see field guides have around the work that they're doing is the same pride and the same excitement and enthusiasm that I had 20 years ago. I think to Mike's point, the sophistication and the training and even the language, you know, like an outdoor behavioral healthcare professional, you know, like that. Mm-hmm that terminology didn't exist 20 years ago. And, uh, but, but there's that, that thread of like, you know, and even, you know, to your point, I've, I've had so many friends gone on, who have gone on now to become therapists and run private practice. And I hear them speak with jealousy of like, oh man, I wish I could have the wilderness to work with these guys because of the amount of change that you see in the, 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 the clients in, in these short sort of periods of time, that's hard to replicate
3: absolutely i think that i mean that's that's the thing that will never change right is that the wilderness is doing so much of the work yeah like the the field guides the therapists of course they play a part but it's really like i've always thought of like the wilderness is is my co-therapist and it's it's doing so much of the work and and like 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 you guys are talking about thinking back i think you know when when i started it it was more about and then like looking at the behaviors but I think there's such a sophistication now on how how field guides are trained and how we look at things where we can really look beyond like just the behavior and what's behind it and have that really intentional training of understanding why are you doing these things and and I think that's a huge part of it that is is so healing for the students as well it's like most of them, for the first time in their lives, people aren't putting them down for the behavior, but really trying to understand who they are and why they're doing that. And they can, they can not only feel connected to the woods, but but that process, and really feel feel safe to be vulnerable, which is is hard to do in so, in society with so many balls to juggle and things going around. Yeah,
2: I have to. I have to. Su- like total support on that, and I remember when I was in training and we were being taught how to deal with sitters and how to protect ourselves from runners and and
0: Mike, can you just tell somebody what a sitter is and a runner? Yeah, a sitter is, is
2: it's like it's somebody who just sits and like they're on a hike and they sit and they refuse to do anything, and so it can be really disruptive and sometimes even dangerous when that happens. And so, so in in our training, you know. Uh, our trainer, his name was Danny. He sat down and he kind of just played out being a sitter. And then he was like, okay, trainees, how would you handle this? So so we, we just called on whatever our intuitive response would be without any regard for like our own histories and our own. So I didn't know that I was more critical than the next guy, meaning like more power struggling, like critical parent, uh, you know, like, like. Like, oh, yeah? Well, let me show you, you little rebellious punk. I mean, that's how I felt a lot inside me. And so uh, it wasn't a part of our training experience to do our own work and understand how our baggage and our traumas will influence the way that we interact with other people who are in those same places. And that, I think, is a monumental change in the training of guides is that The guides are encouraged to do their own work and not to use the kids as a, as a, I don't know, an echo chamber of their own funk. Mm -hmm.
0: What, what did the therapy look like 20 years ago? What was the therapeutic
4: involvement um, as compared to now? I think to Jillian's point, one of the things that stands out is I think that there's been a bit of there's a greater understanding, I think, of the change process and how that occurs for the clients through the experience. And so you've seen different programs develop different ways of sort of facilitating that process for their clients and, and training the field guides to be a continuation of that process as they're going out there with some real intentionality and developments through the years where it's, there's, there's, more of an emphasis on how are these clients going to take this change with them rather than how do we just get them to perform within this container, which is that more behavioral sort of approach. Right. And so I think there was a particular time when I think the industry got some flack, uh, for that more behavioral uh, uh, sort of approach. Now, e- even back, back then taking that approach, I saw amazing things happen. And, and I'm, and I, I can be a real defender of that approach. Even today, I think it's a balanced approach, you know, um, but to, to to the therapy, the therapeutic component, I've definitely seen uh, just the savviness of the guys and being able to carry out and and work within the clients. For example, to bring the clients into the experience a little bit more, rather than have it be just facilitated for them, uh, is something that I think I think across the board you see people being able to talk to and communicate. When people call now, I think that they're they're people are able to communicate like this is how. That the process works for the clients. Uh, we also just bring in, uh, there's more diversity in the therapeutic approaches that you're seeing in the programs, both in the types of therapists that are showing up. And, and so you, you, you see this broad approach, I think nowadays Yeah. More different.
2: special specialized clinicians using the wilderness as a tool to target very specific sets of diagnoses. Mm-hmm. The,
0: I I I remember right from a panel, from the panel I heard you guys a few years ago, is it true that in the early days therapists were not, therapists were not nearly as involved?
2: At Redcliffe, they were pretty involved because it it was more of a behavioral model and the clinical director was a strategic therapist. So he would design really sophisticated quests for clients So I remember one, it was, we had a super narcissistic kid. So they, so they took two staff and, and that those two staff put them on quest, which is just pulling that one kid out. And so it's just shifts with the two staff and one client. And I remember it was just brilliant because the clinical director was like, this is the narcissistic quest. So the guides, you're supposed to play a role here. And your role is that you're so narcissistic, you can't be bothered by the kid's narcissism and it worked man because this kid had never been in a place where there were people more selfish than himself and it really cracked open some awareness for them and then they broke character and were like now you know and so that's pretty involved and we saw that kind of work often okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah i mean i i started at red cliff as well so i definitely echo that but I also see like some of the changes that I've noticed and well um, personally experienced as well as like I remember when when I started the therapist would mostly talk to like the head instructor the person that that had been there the longest and so I don't I don't remember having a lot of interaction with the therapist until I got to that point um, and I think that that at least for me and my experience has changed where I think it's more involved to talk to, to, to talk to and involve all of the staff. And I, I also think, um, you know, we're seeing more and more that that people who were field guides are now therapists. Um, And, and that's my experience. And I, and I think that that is such an advantage, just understanding and really knowing what, what the field guides are doing and that, that, you know how much you can utilize them because they really are the strongest tool out there and and involving you know the the one the staff in their internships on the first day to the ones that are more experienced and what what's going on throughout the week
1: i think there's been a significant shift in in technological advance too right in terms of communications and i think that's shifted the the nature of that relationship as a whole, right, in terms of who's collecting data in the field and how that data is being transferred from the individuals in the field to themselves and their own finite little unit, but also how that data is then moving out into the outside world and being processed by a team of people that are then bringing back that their expectations from an external standpoint. And that, that there's a higher level of coordination by virtue of the communications on a daily basis. And I think, you know, we'd go five days with a couple radio calls, right? That were just basically like, you know, three minute check-ins, right? Let us, we're just gonna tell you everything's okay, right? And, and, and that's shifted a lot because there's case review going on on a daily basis with almost every single client now, right? And that's, that's a significant shift in the way you think about what's going to be achieved from an outcome standpoint, right? Because there's just a much bigger collaboration With a larger team right and i think that's brought a lot of benefit to the work right i think it's also a real challenge in terms of maintaining the the insulation around the group right the insulation in terms of you know their own sacred experience i think that's been challenging to maintain right because there is this much broader need for communications back and forth right and i think if anybody struggles with it, you know with anything in that Domain. It's that it's a necessary part, but you also don't want to create too much overlap because then you're going to end up with a situation where you're not honoring what's technically happening or happening, you know, in in the presence with the group, right? And and depending on the people that are there, which I think you know you guys have spoke to since the start of this this talk is that you know it was that it was that insulation that provided the guides with the ability to feel like they had the autonomy to make choice. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that's different now. Right. It's a very different piece. Right? When,
2: when they brought sat phones in and like the old guard was like, Oh, with the sat <laughs> <phones."> over, <laughs> These over. people are yeah. jamming in our games here, man. And it's totally, right, right. Right, it's totally different now.
4: Yeah. To point like, we have a, we have a, generation now of field guides who've gone on and become therapists. And I think that their understanding of how things work in the field has made a bit, I remember, you know, working with a clinician who would come out in full makeup and like slack shoes, you know, it's like the, the, the wilderness was not their environment, but they were, they were, they were good clinician, you know, but, but, you know, so they're coming out there to do therapy and it just happens to be in the wood. I think nowadays you, you, you do have a lot more clinicians who have a background and really, understanding and having experienced the wilderness themselves yeah i
0: and anybody who's listening to this podcast um and if you're curious about the the history of wilderness therapy will white i did an interview with will white a few years ago and he's he's just a great resource online and anywhere he's done a ton of podcasting on this um if you want to go back and hear some of some of what we're talking about What, uh, for the panel, what do you guys want current field guides to know about those earlier days? You know, you all interact with a lot of field guides in your work. And, you know, is there a sense of, you know, you're all really humble people, like you're very cool people. But is there a sense of like, man, I wish you guys could have seen how it was back then? You know, and I even have that feeling at times as a river guide and as an outward bound guide, like, you know, um, what would you want them to know about the early days that you think could help them, one, have perspective on the work that they're doing and, and maybe appreciate, you know, certain things more? I don't know. I, I, none, none of us want to be the, like, in our day, people, right? Okay, boomers, uh which we're not, but, you know, what do you want those guides to know that might be listening and, and looking for some inspiration on their current job so you're you're asking specifically like how can the past inform them now or are you asking like
2: if we if we're talking to them as our early selves like here's what you should do or
4: not miss
0: how could the past inform them now
4: you know i one of the things is i think there is always that tendency to romanticize how things uh once were you know and I'm I, I like to do that and it's fun to get on here and talk about stories but um you know when I went from Redcliffe went to Aspen and they had a, a saying that I still use today that I really really connect with and it's through the power of wilderness and relationships we discover the fire within and I would say you know that that remains the same and and I would that those those simple pieces I think when all else fails just go back to the the, the basics um uh, and those core principles uh, of discovery that existed then exist now. So when in doubt, you know, uh, listen to the wind and sit around the fire, you know, that that, that kind of thing. I think, you know, that that's the past. I do think that, you know, I have experienced this is that it, it's the the analogy is in everything pizza is not every, always better. And I think sometimes, as a field guide in the current current program, sometimes we can put a lot on them and and add a lot to the experience. And and you know, when there's opportunities to simplify, it was certainly I, I think in some ways simpler back then. Uh, I, I think that the, that that that's a good good way to go. You know.
3: Yeah, I think what I was thinking about is along the lines of what what Jeremy was talking about. That I think with. I think field guides have a lot more support and communication with, with leadership and, and therapists than they've been in the past. And in, in so many ways, that's helpful. Um, but that kind of sense of autonomy and being able to be creative and, and empowerment, um, that that's something that I don't want them to lose, that just really knowing and understanding that how important their role is and that they can have fun and be creative with it and really be empowered with it. Um, And because they have more support, that doesn't mean they need to be dependent on that, that they can, they can still flex their wings.
0: So, so true. And so important, you know, at, at Pure Life, uh, a few years back, we, we were like, man, why aren't the guides taking more initiative to be creative and, and whatnot. And we sat down with them and asked them and they're like, well, we're trying to do exactly what you told us to do. (laughs) And, you know, it was a real, it was a real point of awareness. And I think you really hit it on the head, Jill, that it is very structured. There is so much, we're trying to give them so many tools, but I, I think one theme coming from this whole conversation is simplicity. And at the very core of what, wilderness guiding and therapy is is just being there and being present right and i think that's what a lot of you guys are saying so uh really good point what were you going to say jer i can think of the experiences in my head that were
1: really transformative and and the ones that were haunting for the kids that have communicated those experiences to me you know over time and and it just keeps ringing this bell of the concept of just sort of being off the map. You know, I, I think that the inspiration is the, in the work at times can come from being outside of the fold of what you were trained of what you think the right paradigm is of what the risk measures are even, which is, you know, please read through the lines on that one a little bit. But the the reality is, is that, the transformation a lot of times happens when things are slightly outside of the fold, you know, and, and I look in my early days in Utah and there were big maps on the wall, you know, these ginormous, you know, 12 by 12 or 12 by 20 forest maps of the whole domain and very big red lines and squares. And, and, and there was the sort of articulated version of where everybody was going to be that week. And then there was the real version and, and the, the real version was all everybody in the guide sort of moving towards those red lines as close as they could get in terms of their groups. And then they were sort of pitching in and out of the field areas a little bit to sort of taste the things that were slightly taboo that were slightly off the map, you know, and I think they didn't leave behind their sense of, of management and safety and, and risk management when they left that threshold. They brought it with them, that, but they were all in a place that they were sharing this exploration, right? And I think, in, in, if I could sort of weave the thread between now and then, I would say, you know, go off the map a little bit, use your skills, trust yourself to go into those places, and find inspiration that creates situations where you all have to depend on each other a little bit, because I feel like that's where. That's where it becomes very real, not only for the staff, which is inspiring, but also for the kids who see their necessity to have a role, right? To own it, to to have responsibility that's authentic, that's not just staged and scaffolded, you know. And I think that's where, you know, they transition from adolescence into young adulthood in those moments, you know. And I and I think don't forget that that's possible, right? Because It may not be looked upon well sometimes, but it often is the place that the true change happens, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, For me, so we'll probably get to this stuff later, but so I ended up peeling off on a whole different career trajectory (laughs) because I became so curious about unpacking how it worked. I mean, I really hungered to understand what are the key change components. And I still, I don't, I mean, I have an idea, but I, I haven't been able to fully scratch that itch. But what continues to astonish me is despite the fact that my wife and I were on our third shift and leading it, and maybe because of that fact, I don't know. Um, People changed anyway, you know, like no matter how sophisticated it is, I don't see any evidence that the outcomes are more robust now than they were then. So we're doing it safer, but I don't know if the actual magic is any different. I really don't know if that's true. And so whatever it is that we were doing, something was right because like I'm 20 years into this and I still know of kids whose lives were truly turned around and they went out and that positive change is now like a fractal of influence because they're raising healthy families and they came back and helped their families get better. And like ripple effects from whatever happened there is still going on. And and I think that it, it would be easy for a current guide to hear our war stories of the old days and think you knuckle draggers and we call ourselves that because we saw mistakes and we knew that we should have done things differently in hindsight but i want i'd just say hey guys we still
0: rocked we really did and we did a good job <laughs> mike i i think it is a good segue into what you're doing right now i i'd love you to talk about that um in terms of how that's contributing to the work that we're all doing and what you're seeing and why you're doing it.
2: So I played around in a lot of different positions, at Redcliffe being there 12 years. And when I got up into middle management and was, I was running two groups of kids that were in custody of the state. And, um, and I was really, I really wanted to do a, a really damn good job. And so I was really hungry for like any information I could get from clinicians and administrators and other people who had been doing this a long time. Like, how can I do this better? How can I do it better? And so then when I had the autonomy to make programma- programmatic decisions, I got really fearful because I know humans, if left unchecked, like go down the path of least resistance. We serve our own convenience a lot. And I was like, how do I know that the changes I'm making to the program aren't just to entertain me, to break up the monotony of my job or whatever? So I was like, asking people, how do, How do you know? And and I was like, who's researching this? And and so then I go to the first wilderness therapy symposium, and there are, there are folks that are collecting data, but it's not really, you know, a need. And then around that. Period, you know, there was a lot of bad press about wilderness therapy, and the, you know, they were calling it hoods in the woods, and there were critical incidents that were widely publicized. And I was like, we got to protect ourselves, you know, like we got to really check this out. So, so then the owners of Red Cliff were like, hey, you really like this stuff? Would you like to make a position where you're the research director to help all the programs that we have, like collect data? And I was like, yes. And I went to grad school and came back, and instead of being a therapist, I just gotten deeper into that. So in in trying to facilitate data collection for that program, I went to Best Notes because they'd started this little software offshoot called Outcome Tools which is kind of like Survey Monkey, it's just like an electronic system for entering data and, and and storing it. And then I realized that almost no programs were measuring, literally in the entire field. Less than 5% of programs were consistently measuring what they were doing. With Norman Valid Tools. And I was just like, I, just like, I like this stuff. It, it, it meets my needs for that kind of like altruistic, be a good force in the world. And instead of me working with six or eight clients as a, at a time as a clinician, you know, maybe I could influence a few hundred thousand clients by like helping this logistical thing happen and pr- promoting like data collection. That could hold, you know, that could help us unpack the black box and black box and figure out how to do it better. So, partnered with Outcome Tools, uh, it was too early. The company couldn't make enough money because not enough people were ready. And then I started a consulting company to help people figure out how to do it. Even more nitty gritty in the dirt, like, hello, new research coordinator. This is how you log in. Which I wanted freaking. Jab my eye out with a stick when I have to do that stuff. If I lose sight of like what it actually does, anyway. So I've only
0: I've only had to do that with three or four different research coordinators at my program. So oh, you're yeah,
2: <laughs> you're not the only program that chain smokes research coordinator. So
0: <laughs>
2: it's something that I you know, <coughs> learned to deal with. But the but what's happened to speak to exactly what's going on is so fast forward 10 years from the genesis of the national association of therapeutic schools and programs outcome study which is still ongoing and the outdoor behavioral health outcome study which is the same thing parallel process and so um so now we have literally tens of thousands of data points uh, from parents and kids and it goes out for a year for a lot of these folks and so the research scientists have taken that information and the the outcomes are robust enough that it's been used to get an insurance billing code that that and we're starting to see class action lawsuits that for for insurance companies just flatly denying wellness therapy we're seeing that change people are losing in court like insurance companies are losing in court because the evidence really is strong you know so uh so that's what we're doing now and because there's such buy-in for the for data collection now because the joint commission and other like governing bodies are requiring programs to do this because it makes sense. It'd be like if you went to the doctor's office and they're like ah, I don't feel like taking your pulse or really checking your blood pressure today. You just tell me how you're feeling, you know. It's like we really need to have a pulse on the progress of our clients and the outcomes in order to be like qualified providers. I mean, it's, it's, become a, it's becoming what it has always been. is a, it, Well, it hasn't always been a moral imperative, but it, would, it has always been morally right to do. And now it's becoming a moral imper- imperative for treatment providers. And the evidence is incredibly strong for wilderness therapy. It's stronger than treatment as usual. And we're working right now to, to plan the very first plan and implement. It's already funded the first randomized controlled study of wilderness therapy. So that is the icing on the cake. It is. I mean, Jerry, it's like, yeah, it's double fist pump. It's, like, it's the crowning jewel, right? It's like, yes, you have all this compelling, convenient evidence, but you don't have a randomized control trial. Well, we will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I expected no less from you from that answer, Mike. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Matt, you you've been a pioneer for the industry, and I think that anecdotally we all knew from our work that it worked, right? But you're 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 taking that to the next level, which is hugely important because there are critics of the work we do. I think that the early stigma from the early days, and there were um, some programs that were quite reckless in their approach, well intended but reckless. And um, you guys were around in those days. What do you tell families or people that might call with a lot of skepticism or might say, hey, I've heard some really scary things about this work? Uh, what, how would you guys address that um, from your work in the early days even?
4: Well, one of the things I would say is that, you know, in the mid 90s, when some of those early stories were happening, a group of really quality programs came together and started the OBH Council and 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 since then we've been tracking data training our programs agreeing to meet certain standards uh, that were, were developed both by the state, of, state here in Utah and then adopted by the field as a whole, and uh, you know, agreeing to commit to, to uphold those standards. With that, now we've got 15 years of data and research that we can point to that, uh, that demonstrates the safety of, of the field. So you know, if you're okay with your son or daughter playing high school sports, then uh wilderness therapy is safer than that you know so you know we can we can use real evidence so, you know we don't have to illustrate the safety of the field through stories or promises Uh, we can say, look, here's the data, here's ours, this is what we tracked, here's where the instances come from, here's where our highest, uh, uh, this is where the most instances, we can really be in detail in uh, providing the answer. Uh, We can point to the OBH Council website where there's resources that they can look into for themselves. They can contact people who are outside of our programs to to get their perspective on the safety of the field. Um, And I, I think that's 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 nice it's nice to be able to do that because i think for a lot of our families who are coming from new york for example where this is such a novel experience it is a little bit scary to send your son or daughter out in the middle of the wilderness in, in utah
3: I, I think while like that is important and that appeals to a lot of people and having that that research and that evidence um, I, I like I know it's helped. Um I'm very happy that people like Mike do that because that's not my interest or strong point. Um and so when, when I'm talking to parents about it, it's it's good to be able to reference that and and for me, like working in various positions in wilderness therapy throughout the years, um, and at one point having uh, you know, like a flaming stick thrown in my general direction, I have never I have never felt unsafe and um not only have I seen wilderness therapy change many lives and many families and been honored to be a part of that it has shaped me and I have grown in so many ways and 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 sometimes to me like being able to share that is 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 more powerful that like I I believe in it because it has shaped me. It has, I've grown so much. I grew up working in wilderness therapy.
0: And I think that piece is
1: huge, right? There's, there's an element of growth with all parties involved, right? I I think families can see that they can understand it. I think kids, when they get to the point of accessibility or at least are pre contemplatively accessible, they, they can see that too. Right. And I, and I think, as I've said a thousand times, you know, that the solution in any of these problems is good people, right? It, it's connectedness, right? And I, and I think to answer that question of resistance, of fear, of, you know, nervousness and anxiety, it, it's covered and, and often solved by connecting people in deeper ways, right? And I, and I think that as we look at not only the data and what's happening, we look at the bridge between, you know, an apartment in Manhattan and a, a, you know, a piece of field in Southern Colorado, right. It's a big gap, right. And how do you cross that bridge? You cross that bridge with connectedness and trust with the people. Right. And I, and I think to try and justify any experience when you're working in behavioral healthcare is it's an, an absurd proposition. It's, it's laden with risk right we work with one of the most risky populations short of 24 to 37 year old men in the world right i mean this is a really risky group of people to be working with right for say from a safety standpoint and to look at the the what this industry has done in terms of preserving safety with this population is profoundly amazing right i mean i get you know, you get an email occasionally about somebody who almost got frostbite now, right? I mean, this is, it's amazing that that level of care is taking place in this field on a daily basis, right? Their care is, is at the highest point of the pinnacle. And, and I think for you to try and justify your way past the stories and the history is it's a failed endeavor, right? The only bridge across it is the connectedness of good people right and and i deeply believe in that and i think you know as we look at that transition we have to think about better ways of sharing that experience and normalizing that experience for people so that they can understand what they're getting out of it right so that they can see the outcomes as a father as a as a mother as a stepmother as a child as much as they can see it for their kids right and and if we can do that it 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 dissolves that question. It dissolves that fear. right? Beautiful.
0: And you, you do that work. You're on that front. You're on that first call. You know, um, often <laughs> it's a big jump
1: from Upper Manhattan to, to you know, Southern Utah. I'll just say that. Right.
0: <laughs> big jump. Yeah.
1: yeah. And you want to make sure they don't do it out of addictiveness too, right? Like that. That's, you know, there is a, there is an escape button that isn't a healthy process either, right? they really got to see what they're going to get out of it. Right. As a family.
0: Mm-hmm. and that's Mike, long did you, yeah. you want to add to that? or Oh, just a,
1: a tiny
2: bit. Cause I don't, I don't work with clients anymore. I don't have a caseload. I'm not taking admission calls and I'm not being called by parents about, you know, whether or not, you know, like, should we do this? But I got to tell you, I really love the power of just, saying, well, it works. And they're like, oh yeah, prove it. And I'm like, here. <laughs> yeah, I like that part quite a bit. So when I've had the rare occasion to do it, you know, it's some high powered CEO dad that's like, yeah, I hear this program's collecting data and the research coordinator is pushed in my way. Will you help this guy interpret these data? And I love to sit down on those rare occasions and be like, all right, boss, man, listen to this. Here's how it goes. I like that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Microphone
0: drop petrie with the <laughs> microphone drop. I can see you doing it, man. With yeah. with style, man. With style for sure. All right, last question. And uh, last question is, you know, a lot like you all described in the beginning of getting into this, feeling like you found your people, found your tribe, found your calling. Um, a lot of people, a lot of young field guides will do it for a, for a season, and then those of us do it for a lifetime. And my question is, is when did you know you were a lifer? Uh, Maybe a specific story or something. And I'll share a quick one. When I was an Outward Bound guide, I actually ran the river program, but I had some time off and I wanted to see the uh, backpacking program. And uh, so I I joined an adult Outward Bound course. And this, this man came on it that we're really good friends to this day. He was so hilarious! He had this really dry, self-deprecating sense of humor, and he was so depressed, and it was obvious. And he wasn't necessarily open about that. We weren't a therapeutic program, but you know, very quickly we all kind of figured it out. And about a week into that backpacking course, I did a waterfall rappel, uh, facilitated a waterfall rappel, and he was quite nervous and um, super capable and I was running the belay at the bottom of that waterfall rappel and he came down and I was there to greet him and water's just you know rushing you know it's just a really uh profound moment and I remember he kind of got to the bottom and he was he did it successfully and he looked up with these just beautiful blue eyes and his face was just glowing and it was just like And I was like, man, I, this is my life, like, this is my life's work. And I knew that moment that like any aspirations my family had for me to to, to be a doctor or that I had to be a, you know, a responsible adult were shot. Um, And, you know, it was not a direct path for me as some of you have heard my story, but um, I knew, I knew like nothing in the world was was better than this work that I was you know learning about at a young age
4: I think for me I'd spent a couple years field guiding and you know letting that seep deep into my bones and uh loved it uh but like many field guides you know I'm in my mid-20s by this time and I'm contemplating like what am I going to do with my life and so feeling some pressure to 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 test some things out and go a different direction and so I explore and I did and I took took some time off I went and I detailed with I, I uh, went I was a wildland firefighter detailed with the helicopter crew in Provo and uh, I did that two summers I, I spent doing that and during the time when I was off guiding it was a long enough period of time that uh it I found myself anxious to get back to the power and the intensity of the relationship and what happens in the wilderness. And so it was, you know, really those two summers that I just, you know, stepped away and did something else with the thought that like, hey, I may explore a different career path here. Uh, And just anxiously wanting to get back to the work at the end of those experiences. I knew it's like, okay, I don't think that I can escape this work. and so. After those two summers, I was sort of all in. This is what I'm going to do, and just have been wearing the chacos ever since.
0: (laughs) 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 I got. I'm not barefoot, man. That's uh, that's 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 how we do it in Costa Rica, man. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right, Jer.
1: I think it was kind of undeniable after my training, to be honest, you know, I, I think I was, I mean, I fought it for a long time, right? I mean, there were so many other versions of, I mean, I grew up in a very blessed life on a lake in Michigan and had lots of wonderful people surrounding me that lived their lives very differently and, and, you know, had a thousand different career paths that led them to houses and boats and things like that and I just there was a there was a simplicity that spoke to me after I stripped it all away that was just undeniable and i had been sort of reading it and thinking it and living it in very minute ways before and when it was thrust upon me almost unexpectedly it became undeniable I couldn't avoid it and I remember like I can even I was just thinking about when the solidification happened. And it was almost like in my life, it often happens in moments of solitude. One, I think, was probably a solo I took around that same time. And another one was just really driving through the desert out of Escalante down towards Arizona in my own car with my music post shift saying like, I don't know that life can get much better than it is right this (laughs) second, right? And, and I think that piece really was a search that wove itself into everything I did professionally from that point on and still does, right? I mean, when I go to visit Andrew or I see any of you guys in your work, it, it's those moments I'm looking for every day, right? And, and hopefully trying to share with my kids and my family and, and the families that I work with. Right. And, and I don't know that it was definitely part of being the change and the catalyst for that. Right. That turns me on every day, gets me out of bed. Right. Um, But I think there's also a piece about lifestyle that it just speaks to us. Right. And I see it in, Many people around the world, and they do it in lots of different ways. And this one, I just can't can't do anything but, you know, <laughs> keep thinking I can, and it just keeps coming back and ringing. You know, it's like in the back of my head all the time. Good. Yeah, I
2: feel the longing to go run a tire shop. It just pulls me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I'll tell you, a taco truck in Mexico wouldn't be bad on a yeah, no. break, but I just it, it just isn't gonna happen. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I the thing I love about listening to you, Jeremy, is sometimes I feel like I'm like listening to Shakespeare when you talk about you, like (laughs) he's just so poetic in it make me blush now, Mike. No, 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 no
2: lie. I give you my solid word that I had planned while you were speaking, Jeremy, to call you after this on the phone, not a text, and say, dude, it is rare that I am listening to someone articulate not just about wilderness therapy, but about the internal process in such a succinct and clear way that I, it's notable enough that I'm like, I should let him know that he does that really well. And I appreciate it. So instead Thanks, of man. calling you, I'll Thanks, just man. document that mother. right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Words are good, man. Words are good. Yeah. 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 Jillian from insanity.
3: Yeah. yeah. i I mean, I, i'm I'm feeling a lot of what everybody is saying, I think, mean, like I mentioned before when I started in wilderness, that was the first time I ever really felt like like this these are my people, this is where I belong, and I think for me, in some ways, it feels um somewhat selfish I think like i i I crave um challenge in my life and and growth and I feel like wilderness has always been that place where it's this certain level of safety and comfortability but always feeling feeling challenged and being able to grow as well and um actually when I was thinking about doing this I thought back to this this memory I had with with you Mike I don't know if you remember this but um at one point you had told me that I think you we were doing a like my yearly review or something like that, and you told me that you admire how I'm not afraid to face my demons, mm. and um, that has always really stuck with me because I don't know that I fully saw that or acknowledged that in myself. But I think, you know, my mom definitely needs some credit, but I think in a lot of ways, working in wilderness therapy has actually taught me how to do that, and um and to to crave that and and i think that that's something that definitely brings me back where it's like the the people people that you find that that you can feel immediately connected to like nowhere else and that constant challenge and and sense of growth
2: it was frustrating to me how you could seem so calm in facing your demons because i was not Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the the moment I knew it was a metaphysical experience. It was a spiritual experience. So about three years before I went on my training, um, I had a dream. It was, I was taking a nap and it was a dream where, you know, you're dreaming and you can take action in the dream. And it was really a memorable dream. And I was standing up on this kind of hilltop not a mountaintop because there were bigger mountains around and i was looking at a landscape that i had no like had not experienced in my real life and i was just looking out across what i found to learn to be pinyon juniper forest and sagebrush and uh and i was just you know that feeling like when you're hiking along and you're thinking in your own thoughts and you uh You know, you're maybe watching the ground and then you just look up and you're just like, like just the landscape does this physical thing like right there. And it's like this energy. So that's how I felt in this dream. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, where is this place? And I hear uh, someone behind me, a woman say, hey, which needle on the compass is it that points north? Is it the red one or the yellow one? So I turn around in my dream. And there's six or seven people standing there. And I'm and it's so vivid. And I'm like, wow, who are these people? And there's a woman standing there with a compass. And I looked down at it. And I was like, the red one is the one that points north if you're facing north. You know, I mean, that's, that's the one. And the dream ends. I wake up and I'm like, crazy dream. Think about it for a few days. It fades. Fast forward to my training. We're at the end of the training. By the way, I laughed more on that training in a one-week period than any other time in my life, um, sober. And, uh, it was us at the end of the training and I was standing on top of Lone Pine Peak, Jillian, you know, where the pictographs are down under there. So we finished our solo up there and I'm looking out there and the woman behind me, her name was Liz. She said, Hey, which needle on the compass is it that points North? Is it the red one or the yellow one? And when I turned around, uh, I, I went pale because I remembered that dream and my wife is like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm so good because this is it. I don't know how it's going to shake out. And I think at some point we're going to have to make money because we can't live on rice <laughs> But we're doing this and it, and I loved it for so long that I truly started to feel complacent that I wasn't challenging myself more by doing things that were more responsible, you know? Cause like you were alluding to Andrew, and I've heard you talk about this before, like you were kind of docketed for this like white collar, I don't know, like upper echelon career, man. And it's turned out that it's gone this way, but it's like, it's like, I felt like I was like, possibly being selfish. Like Jillian said, just like, like, I love this so much. This is what I'm going to do, come to hell, you know?
0: <laughs> so, yeah, that's when I knew training. That's beautiful, ma'am. That's beautiful. It gave me the chills just hearing that story. Inspiring, man. Yeah. A good, a good really? note to finish on. You guys are awesome. This was uh, definitely um, exceeded my expectations, and I look forward to more of these conversations. And I can't thank you enough uh, for taking some time to document this. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy this conversation at every level. So.
1: Exactly. Thank Thanks, Andrew, Thank for pulling you. us all together, man. Yeah. Really great. Thank you.